Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to True Grit and Tough Times. Governor Christy Nome shares lessons learned. Please welcome the president of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Well, welcome to all of you who are here in person and a warm welcome to those of you who are joining virtually. It's great with each of these events to see more people getting back into the routine of being in person. And in a lot of ways, that's a great theme for what our guest today will be talking about first in her brief address to you, and I know in the conversation that she and I will have, and ultimately in the questions that you'll have the opportunity to ask. And so our guest, as you know, needs very little introduction, whether you are in South Dakota, which of course is blessed by her leadership, or you're in Rhode Island, or in Texas, or around the world, you know that conservatism, when combined with great cheerfulness and truth, is something that's very persuasive. And so on behalf of all of us at the Heritage Foundation, it is a distinct honor to welcome to the stage the governor of South Dakota, Christy Noem. Thank you. It's wonderful. Good afternoon. How are we doing? Good. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here and all of you for coming uh, to have a conversation today. What an honor it is for me to be here at the Heritage Foundation. And also, Dr. Roberts, thank you so much for hosting and for facilitating the conversation we're going to have. You know, it really is interesting times in our country. And I do want to thank all the work that you do um, to facilitate the discussion on freedom. Many times when I'm looking at what's happening in this country and the agenda that the liberal left have, it really is a threat to our way of life. They're threatening the foundational freedom that our founders gave us, uh, that we have worked for so many years to try to protect and preserve for our kids and our grandkids. In fact, I look at our state and in this country, and I think the people that live here are desperate for hope. And really, hopefully, what we can do each and every day is get up and give them some perspective of our history, why our Constitution was important, how we make our decisions today based on it, and what that truly does mean for families to live successfully and to continue to provide far into the future that sense of liberty and freedom that America stood for. Remember, America was the greatest experiment ever created in humankind. And it was the best of Western civilization put together by men and women who sacrificed greatly to give us something that we call a republic that now it's our duty to protect. Uh, when I look at what President Biden is doing to this country and, and what his administration is, uh, he's making history in the very worst way, setting records uh, with historic inflation, in fact, the highest inflation we've seen in 40 years. Uh, also uh, threatening our supply chains. And for me, in particular, being a lifelong farmer and rancher, uh, threatening our food supply. I've been talking for over 15 years now about how food security is a national security issue. And consistently, the decisions that are being made are outsourcing that and allowing other countries, such as China, to buy up that food production system that makes us extremely vulnerable. When we don't grow our own food in this country, that's when another country controls us. So I would say that most of you in this room probably first heard about me 
when the liberals were busy attacking me on the nightly news a couple of years ago. Rachel Maddow and Elizabeth Warren, night after night, were on the networks saying that I was irresponsible and dangerous and reckless because of the decisions that I was making in South Dakota. Uh, I think in order to understand how I made some of those decisions, it might be best if I tell you a little bit about me and my background and understand how I grew up. I grew up on a farm and ranch in South Dakota. In the book, I talk quite a bit about it. There's quite a few stories about cows uh, and horses, but uh, that really is my passion. From the time I was little, all I wanted to do was to grow up and ranch with my dad. He was my best friend. When I was in college, he was killed uh, in an accident. I ended up taking over the operation. It was a very large operation at the time, and we got hit with death taxes. So people ask how I got involved in government and politics. It was because of that. I could not believe that there was a tax policy that hit a family at a time of tragedy and threatened taking away their family business, the most unfair tax we have in our federal code. So I started to show up. I started to go to meetings. Tom Daschle was the United States majority leader in the US Senate. He was from South Dakota. So I started going everywhere he went and got passionate about tax reform. And I realized that the people who showed up still made a difference. I ended up overseeing uh, different policies in the state. I think he appointed me to some of our farm agencies to keep me busy and out of his hair. But then I also ended up serving in our legislature and rewrote our property tax system while I was there. I ran for leadership, recognizing that leadership controlled everything, and ended up running for Congress in 2010. Listen, I served in Congress and uh, was grateful to do that, grateful to work on tax reform with President Trump when he was in the White House. But beyond that, I also recognize that governors are CEOs. And governors get the chance every single day to wake up and make decisions that impact people to set an agenda. And so I ran for governor wanting to build stronger families and for South Dakota to be an example to the nation. I had no idea South Dakota would have the chance to be an example to the nation because of a pandemic. Uh, and I will tell you that I think I did what every other governor in the country did during COVID. Uh, we all studied the science. We all talked to experts and looked at the data. I, what I did was probably take it a step further. Um, I also spent a lot of time with my general counsel, talked a lot to constitutional attorneys. I really wanted to understand what authority I had as a governor and what authority I didn't have. I knew that when a leader overstepped their authority, especially in a time of crisis, that that's when we break this country. And I did not want to do that. So at the end of that story, South Dakota ended up being the only state in the country that never once closed a single business. In fact, we didn't. I never even defined what an essential business was in the state of South Dakota. I didn't believe that governors had the authority to tell you that your business wasn't essential. When, when the president offered uh, elevated unemployment benefits, we were also the only state in the country that said, thank you, Mr. President, for that flexibility, but we don't need it. Our people want to work. Today in South Dakota, I have less than 700 people in the entire state that are on unemployment. Everybody gets up and they go to work and they're thriving because of it. Uh, we did incredible things. I told my people we would trust them. I'd give them all the information and the data that I had, uh, but that we would get through this together and give them the flexibility they needed to make the best decisions for their families and their businesses. 
and that we would be creative and get through these challenging times. And overwhelmingly, we did. Today, South Dakota has the best economy in the country. Uh, we are growing at the second fastest rate in the country. People are moving into our state by the thousands. Hundreds of businesses are coming. I have historic revenues, and I'll remind everybody we don't have an income tax in South Dakota, not a corporate or personal income tax. We don't have a personal property tax. All we have essentially that funds state government is a four and a half cent sales tax. And we have historic revenues that have allowed us to set records in what we're bringing in, also putting record amounts into trust funds, paying off debt. We have a triple A credit rating. We have the best pension fund in the country that is fully funded. We have been able to pay off debt for our technical schools and colleges. We've built dams and railroads and bridges and roads. And I had a vision when I became governor to put high-speed internet access across every corner of our state. We fully funded that in one year. We've done incredible things by just doing what conservatives say they believe, but we just did it. And I think it really is an opportunity for us to be a hope to the country and to really show and proof, prove that what we believe as conservatives works. Now, I was shocked by what I saw across this country by how the liberal left used fear to control people and how the media used it to promote an agenda. And then across the country from state to state, we watched as people rolled over and they gave up their freedoms. Because the government told them that they couldn't gather together, they gave up their freedom of assembly. Uh, because the government told them they couldn't go to church, they gave up their freedom of religion. Because the government is telling certain platforms what people can say and what they can't say, they're giving up their freedom of speech. Our fundamental rights are being threatened each and every day. And it's important to us that we continue to point back to our Constitution and the Bill of Rights because it still guides every decision that leaders should be making today when they impact people, whether it's at the local level, state level, or at the federal level. I'm proud of what South Dakota has done. We've got amazing people, amazing families and kids in our classrooms that were in our classrooms and are leading the country in educational outcomes because they had the opportunity to be with their teachers. We also have passed major reforms in homeschooling and school choice. We've banned CRT from our universities and training in our K-12 system, passed the strongest girls sports bill in the entire country, and constitutional carry was the very first bill that I signed as governor into law. In fact, this year, I've waived all fees to carry any permits in the state of South Dakota, and I even pay for your federal background check. So in South Dakota, it won't cost you a penny to exercise your Second Amendment rights as well. So this is a story that I believe the rest of the country can wrap their arms around and really understand that what is the best of America is in South Dakota. And we're a small state, but that means we can be nimble. And I've always known we could be a pilot project for the rest of the country and that we could show that what we believe in principles and values really does work and create freedom and happiness. In fact, our people led the country in a decrease in suicides, mental health issues during the pandemic. In fact, only two states in the country had their overdoses go down during the pandemic. New Hampshire's went down by a half a percent. South Dakota's went down by 16%. So I'm looking forward to the discussion today. I will 
stop with that and let Dr. Roberts come back up and lead the discussion looking forward to your questions. But while most of the time we turn on the news and hear politics and policy discussion, it can be challenging. Uh, it can be a bit negative or pessimistic. I would say there are places in this country where conservative leadership in many of our states shows that we have a lot to be hopeful for and that America is an incredibly special place to be that we'll continue to protect for years and years to come. So thank you for the honor of being here and let's visit. Well, Governor Noem, thanks again for being here. I'll just give you reaction from, from a guy who's new to DC and uh, spent some time in Wyoming, which I know is not All South right. Dakota, but you would probably concede similar folks. Pretty close. Which is to say, they represent average America. Mm -hmm. And to say average America is a great compliment because there are people who recognize there's a certain role for government. It's very limited as, as you outlined, but this is, this is really the point. You've got the advantage of being the governor of that great state, but also having spent some time, a tour of duty, shall we say, here uh -huh. in D.C. And your book strikes me because you start with the first sentence about something your dad told you, which is that we fix problems, yeah. to he, paraphrase him. He consistently said, we don't complain about things, we fix them. That's right. Yep. And so with that, knowing that things are going well in South Dakota, how in the world do we fix Washington, D.C.? Oh, my Simple goodness. Simple question to get us started. Well, you know, I was always shocked because I served in our state legislature. Our state legislature's only uh, session is 40 days long. So they're all citizens. They have other jobs. They come in, serve 40 days. They balance the state budget, pass their bills, and they go home. As governor, it's fantastic because for the vast majority of the time, the legislators aren't there. Um, but I was shocked when I got to D.C., coming from being in leadership at the state level to serving in Congress. Uh, within several weeks, I, I felt like I knew why this place was so broken, and it's because it has no rules. I went, I went to my first committee hearing, and I prepared, read all the documents ahead of time. I sat down in the committee hearing, and it was about to begin, and the staffer came over to me and said, here's the questions that you'll ask today in today's committee. And I said, well, I have my own questions that I'm going <laughs> to... They said, no, these are the questions the chairman would like you to ask. And I said, well, no, I actually have questions that I... And they would say, no, the chairman would like you to ask these questions. And I was so shocked by that, that there was going to be a certain conversation that was trying to be facilitated by the chairman. But I realized within several weeks that a lot of the dysfunction in Washington, D.C. is because there's no rules. I could file a bill out here for 20 years. There's no guarantee it would ever get a hearing, that no one would ever have a discussion on that topic. The only way it would get a hearing is if that chairman decided he wanted to talk about it, or she, and have the conversation. That bill may pass through that committee. It may get overwhelming support, but that doesn't mean it'll ever be voted on on the House floor. Um, if It may get on the House floor, but that would be because the speaker and the majority leader decide they want to have that conversation. If the House passes a piece of legislation, a reform, the Senate can completely ignore it. What surprised me was the House even had its own rules committee. It could go to the rules committee and make up a new rule for every single bill that came to the floor. If they didn't like the rule, they could go change the rule and make a new one. The dysfunction out here does not create open debate. It doesn't create any accountability. At the state level in South Dakota, if you have a bill, it's guaranteed a hearing. If it passes committee within three days, it'll be on the House floor for a vote. If it passes the House, it will be scheduled for a hearing in the Senate. That legislative 
process facilitates open debate and accountability and issues can't be ignored. So most people don't necessarily always hold to a respect for the legislative process, but if you had that kind of open debate on every topic that was important to the people of this country, I think it would change things. People would have to vote. They'd have to be accountable for how they voted. They wouldn't get to ignore issues that they that they don't want to talk about that worked for their political career and the country would be much better served. That's well, that's one example. Well, it's a great example and, and not that it's any surprise, it's just a lot of common sense mm -hmm. there, which is in short supply, I've discovered, in the nation's capital. It leads me to this question, which is, do you, do you sense, not just with your hat as governor on, but as you like to say, cowgirl governor, <laughs> that Americans kind of across the political spectrum, but especially right of center, know that they've had enough of this and that as they are prepared in all likelihood to send a conservative majority to D.C. in the coming months, that they want that conservative majority to govern with a heavier dose of common sense than, say, you experienced when you were a member of the House. Oh, absolutely. I think most people, when they look at what's happening out here, they don't understand how far, how it got to the point where it's at today. Um, you know, we need to be able, civil discourse was something that our founders recognized was necessary to preserve our republic. And we don't have that today. Instead, you'd rather have, we have leaders that stand up on TV and are more willing to grab a headline than they are to have a, a, a sensible policy debate. And that, that is the destruction of our country happening before our very eyes. And the American public recognizes it. Most people got panicked when parents started showing up at school board meetings. I thought it was fantastic. It was there, because there's people that haven't been paying attention to government and politics for many, many years, and they're finally paying attention now. People recognized during the pandemic the influence that bad leadership has on their lives. It mattered who was making those decisions on their businesses, their families, their kids, and now they're paying attention in ways that they never were before. That's a good thing, and that's something that'll make all the difference in the world in this next election cycle. Sure, I, and I think to piggyback on that, if you don't mind, that one of your gifts as, a, as an elected leader, we were talking about this offstage, I just mean this not to be patronizing at all, but heartfelt, is, and it's probably because of your upbringing in South Dakota, going back to the average American point, is that you have a wonderful, very deep understanding of policy, but you can communicate that in a way that the average South Dakotan and American understands, not to suggest they aren't smart, mm -hmm. but they're doing really smart things like not paying attention to politics. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and where I'm going with that is that if, if you're giving advice to people who may hold office here in D.C., what are the issues that are really good for conservatives to be leaning into right now? And what would be some messaging lessons that you've learned along the way? You know, the interesting thing is that by serving here for eight years, I've got the cell phone numbers of a lot of people <laughs> who still serve here. So unfortunately, they still get to hear what I think and, and what some of my advice would be. You know, just be a normal human being, first of all. I mean, honestly, you can't turn start. on the TV and feel like any of those people are normal anymore. Um, you, know, you know, talk like a human being to somebody that's your neighbor, the conversation you would have at the gas station or at church on Sunday morning. A lot of people get on TV and think they have to perform. And frankly, I think America's over that. And then focus on what is happening in your community. And you'll watch the national journalists and reporters constantly try to drag political and elected officials down into controversial subjects. Just because they ask you stupid questions doesn't mean you have to answer them. Um, when they ask you a question on a lot of these 
um, networks or whatever their agenda they're trying to drive, these elected officials need to remember they should still be answering with what people at home care about. That's what they should be talking about. Glenn Youngkin was a perfect example of this. I thought he did a fantastic job at that. They consistently, every time he got interviewed, tried to drag him into a divisive topic that the people of Virginia weren't concerned about. And he came back to kids. He came back to education. He came back to what the people and the voters in his state cared about. And it made all the difference in the world than him getting enough support to now be the governor. It's a classic case. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that five, 10, hopefully 50 years down the road, political science courses that look at campaigns and messaging of campaigns will look at Governor Yunkin's campaign, you know, being a new Virginian, I'm very yep. grateful. But they'll also look at what you have done, and, and thankfully, what a lot of conservative governors have done. And it leads me to this question about education. Y'all are doing things right in South Dakota, and in, in an increasing number of states, we're seeing that happen. We're very encouraged here at Heritage as we prepare to be active in state legislatures on school choice that this will be the era of every dollar following every child. And yet, as you know better than anyone, the behemoth is right here in Washington, D.C. And so how do we fix the federal stranglehold on education? Well, it, essentially, it, it comes down to governors, mm -hmm. I do believe. I mean, we could talk about members of Congress eliminating the Department of Education or, or reforming it to that level, but governors have incredible ability to make a difference right at home. And we empower our school boards. One of the first things that I started to do when I was governor was offer training for our school board members. Many of them, when they come in, it may be uh, a volunteer position in some of these small school districts or something that they're not necessarily recognizing the authority that they have. And by training them so that they actually know the power of the decisions that they make, they're not subjected to just the experience and knowledge of the administrators that are running the building. Uh, many times when they come into their first meeting, you know, they're told by the administrator, well, this is how we've always done it. This is the experts in the field. And without any prior knowledge, that's how they make their decisions. So empowering those school board members is incredibly important. And then letting them know that they don't have to take these federal funds. The federal government is very quick to um, dictate to our school districts by using money as an incentive. Uh, you know, recently the Biden administration threatened us in South Dakota that if we didn't allow boys to play in girls' sports, they were going to take lunch money away from our school kids. Now, it's so interesting to me that they're pushing their activist agenda so hard, they're willing to create an unfair situation for women and take food away from children. It's shocking to me that they think that works politically or even in day-to-day -day life, but that's how extreme uh, the left is right now. When I first became governor, one of the very first bills that I ran, that first legislative session, was to put more civics and history in our classrooms, especially at the high school level. That session, my Republicans killed it because they thought it wasn't necessary. They thought it'd be too hard on our administrators to go find new curriculum and our teachers to teach new subject matters and they killed it. That was in 2019. Now look, just two years later, overwhelmingly what's sweeping across the country is the need for more civics and history in our classrooms. And of course, I've gotten their support now and we've done some great things in South Dakota, but us being proactive and seeing these problems before they're a crisis is incredibly important. And we shouldn't have to argue with ourselves or people who should know better about the importance of dealing with them early rather than waiting until it's already gone out of our classrooms. 
It's really that simple. I mean, as, as you know, and probably a lot of smart policy people in this room, whether they work at Heritage or elsewhere know, there's a lot of studies that back that up, but it goes back to being common sense. So let me ask you two questions about policies from your perspective as a South Dakotan, and then we'll get to audience questions. Sure. The first has to deal with inflation. Mm -hmm. And of course, speaking about academic studies, we know all of the reasons in terms of, of economics about why inflation happens. But what I'm curious about is for you to let this audience and people who are watching online to know, what's the effect of this ridiculous federal spending on a state that's very well run that simply doesn't want that level of involvement from the federal government? How do you handle that? You know, I would say that we uh, definitely are better off than a lot of other states because of the decisions we're making. You know, because we are in a good financial situation, we're not in where we have to increase taxes to fund some of the basic services that government may be responsible for or committed to. Uh, but our people are still affected dramatically by the policies that this administration is taking. I would say, you know, for us in South Dakota, we grow your food. Agriculture is our number one industry. Tourism is number two. So when you have bad energy policy that drives up energy costs, that hits a state like ours very hard. I tell people it's consistently cold in the winter and it's hot in the summer in our state and it is a long ways to drive anywhere. Um, we are a high energy demand state. Uh, and when you increase energy costs on a state like ours, for instance, one farmer to run their tractor now a week is another five to $7,000 per week more than it was just a year ago. So when you start talking about our farm, which would have six, seven, eight tractors running every week, the amount of costs just for one operation that obviously is going to be passed on to consumers at the end of the line, you can understand why food costs are higher. And many times we don't even control our own supply chains, you know, the fertilizer, Many of those companies are owned by countries such as China, chemical companies, our processing systems. If you remember during, during the pandemic, they talked about my meat processing plant that was a hot spot. That's a Chinese-owned facility, extremely difficult to work with and not my favorite people in the world. We had some very heated, uh, hard and difficult times during that, but now China is buying up hundreds of thousands of acres of land across the country as well. They will control us when they control our food supply. I tell people all the time, they're not dummies. Um, you know, they're not just gearing up and strengthening their military and manipulating concurrency and stealing our IP. They're also slowly going after our food supply. And that's truly when they control us. So all of this inflation and this bad economic policy allows other countries to strengthen themselves and weakens America and it will have long lasting effects on us. So it's the family at home and what they can't pay for that they could pay for a year ago, but also it has a long lasting effect in how much it weakens America for the next decade or so, or even in the long term when it strengthens our enemies. Well, you did me a favor because I wanted to ask you about China, Chinese Communist Party and the mm -hmm. land. And, and so I'm gonna move on to, I'm gonna cheat a little bit here and ask sort of a third policy area, which is about the lockdowns and then we'll get to audience sure. questions. And uh, you said you're willing to field any questions. So sure. here it is. <laughs> Dr. Fauci is sitting right here with us. Uh, what do you tell him? Well, I saw him running around. I would tell him a lot. Um, <laughs> and I did actually many, you know, I saw him for years running around with Pelosi and the liberals. So from the very beginning when he was given a platform to be an expert in this area, 
uh, you know, the warning signs that he would turn this into a political agenda were there. Um, he's been wrong on everything. I mean, we, we had, most people don't realize, governors were on conference calls with each other, with Fauci, with Burks, with the White House task force, with supposed experts talking and having many hours and hours and hours of conversation throughout the pandemic. Um, Fauci's a liar. He was lying from the very beginning. He knew he wasn't following the data and the science. He had an agenda from day one. Uh, if you saw, I guess he just recently came out and told us masks don't work now. And uh, dear God, I feel like I'm, you know, the man's bipolar. And how many times he's gone back and forth on these issues. So, you know, he, he out of anybody in this country should never be given one minute of airtime ever again for the devastation that he has wrecked on so many families. He has wiped out their livelihoods. He's destroyed kids' education. We have kids that forever will struggle because they've been forced to wear masks that has hurt their development. Um, it is a tragedy what that man was allowed to do to the United States of America. So true. So true. Something told me you wouldn't disappoint. Oh, I'm in sorry. In answer to that question. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Well, we do have a little bit of time for a handful of questions before we wrap up and the governor signs some books. So you know the rules here. There's a microphone coming around. Just raise your hand. We'll get to as many of you as possible. And you help us do that if you are as succinct as possible. So first question here, sir. Hi, my name is Jed Fisher. Um, agriculture is close to my heart. My home state is Utah. Um, and you mentioned about um, national food being a national security issue. What is your vision for us reaching food security in the United States? And what do you see the state's role and the federal government's role in that vision? Well, it should be in America's best interest that we have a diversified food supply in the United States. And the reason it should be diversified and not controlled by one entity is so that it can always be competitive and that you are constantly uh, you know, having that competition in, in what we are growing and who owns it so that you don't have one person controlling the entire food supply, that it's safe that way, and that it also is affordable for every family on the grocery store. Uh, when they go shopping, you, you don't want to have to see a $12 loaf of bread or an $18 gallon of milk. And the reason that we've always consistently approached our food policy that way was to keep it available to every single family in this country that they could feed themselves. So for me, it would, again, it's, it's not difficult if you have a foundation you start from. I tell people all the time, my job as governor, over, since I've been governor the last three and a half years, wasn't difficult if you have a foundation. If you start with the Constitution and what authority I have and what my role is, it's not hard to make all your decisions based off of that. Our food policy should come from that same type of foundation, that it should be controlled in America, that it should be diversified, that we shouldn't have one company or one entity owning up all the land and all the processing systems, and that every consumer should have access to it. And then you keep that com competition in that market to make sure that it is going to be a safe and affordable food supply. Based on that, uh, anytime we empower a foreign country to come in and buy up those processing systems or our land is when we're going to lose control of it. And in, it's in our best interest to not allow that to happen. Thanks for the question, for your response. Fair treatment. I was going to go to this side. Okay. Sir, right here in the middle. Thank you. 
Hi, Governor Nome. Thanks for being here. Um, you talked a little bit about federal funds being sent um, to states, and sometimes it's for money that we don't really want. What can we do about Democrats funding, like, abortive fashions like Plan B? And, you know, why are my tax dollars going to that when I'm not necessarily supporting that? So you're talking about... You said Plan B. Are you talking about uh, abortion funding? Uh, abortion funding yes. and abortive okay. fashions like Plan B, yeah. Well, the Hyde Amendment has always ensured that we didn't use federal dollars to fund abortions at the federal level, and that's something that I've always supported. I would hope we could continue to maintain, but we've seen that threatened just recently again, and Democrats pushing to have that type of funding available across the country from the federal government. You know, that's a policy debate that many times you saw slipped into bigger bills that many times forced people to make a tough choice on if they were going to fund the government or fund our military or fund our police officers and then have that provision and put in there as well. So this is something I know the Heritage Foundation's worked on over the years and many other conservative groups on having limited subject bills so that you didn't end up having a bill that had 20 different topics where people were forced to fund abortions while they were funding something that truly was the role of the federal government. But for us, uh, anytime you have an elected official um, in an office, they have, they have influence. What they say matters. The relationships that they have matter. The one advice I would give to everybody in the room, too, is that we talk a lot in this country about your education, how important it is, you know, how, how your resume and developing that out is important for your future, I would say the world still moves on relationships. And if you know that at all, it, it happens up here in Washington, D.C. more than ever. So when it comes to an issue that people may be passionate about, such as protecting life, uh, like I am, um, I, can, I look for every opportunity to defend life in my role as an elected official, but I also build relationships that I know that allow me to advocate for that in different ways that most people don't think of. And I even put somebody in my office that has a job description of being an unborn child advocate. That means that person gets up every single day and they look for opportunities in law, in regulation, and in the court system to defend life. And, and that's what they do. So many times uh, when we are leaders, you may feel like, well, I'm not a congressman, I'm not a yet, or a U.S. senator yet, but, um, but you still have the ability to use relationships that you have um, to talk to people about the importance of federal funds not funding something like that uh, because it's not an appropriate use of those federal dollars. I think that comment sparked the, uh, the desire of, of a lot of our audience, which is decidedly young, Governor. I've, I've noticed yes. that. Great, great encouragement. So, yes, public service. Next question, though. Uh, nope, we'll go here. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Governor Nome. I'm uh, William Cady from the Osgood Center for International Studies. Uh, so often in my field, uh, I see with some of my liberal partners uh, such a mass uh, movement to provide humanitarian assistance in, for example, Ukraine mm -hmm. or different parts of Africa. But in my short time this summer in uh, D.C., I walk around our streets and I see poverty, huge, huge poverty all around our streets. How do we get to liberal uh, voters that are fringe voters to realize the fallacy in that entire situation? You know, this will be a little bit, you'll, you'll think this is off topic, but it's not. When, when I married into my husband's family, the vast majority of them were Democrats. So then I took their name and I ran for Congress as a Republican. 
So <laughs> you can imagine how much they loved me. Um, but you know, many of them have, have re-registered now as Republicans. In fact, I would say I tell my, I tease my mother-in-law all the time that she'll say something, I'll say, Sharon, you sound like a crazy Tea Party Republican now. It's, you know, it's amazing. But, you know, and that, that change did not happen because I blew them up at the Thanksgiving Day dinner table. It just didn't. Um, it happened because we loved each other. We built relationships. We had conversations. And eventually they saw I was right. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It's really no, but simple. It's really simple. No, but I, I think that's what we've seen break down in our society, is that nobody talks to each other anymore. We've gotten offended by each other, and we've quit talking to each other. Um, so I would encourage you to start having conversations with people that you haven't had before. We avoid conversations because we don't want it to be difficult or uncomfortable, but start by listening. Ask people questions and listen, and then have a relationship first. Um, so that you really can have a civil debate and discussion on the policy. And that's how you make a big difference to those folks right there. And, and it, that of times, that contrast can be made with, yes, it's a horrific tragedy that we're seeing in Ukraine. It really is. It's awful. But look at this tragic situation we have right here on our front doorstep, and let's go see what we can do there today about that as well. Many times I would say people, I ask the question almost every single day of somebody, is that a job that the government should be doing in your life? Or is that a job that you should be doing? Or is that a job that your church should be doing? Or a nonprofit should be doing? So many times it's, it's what is that a proper role for the government is the best conversation to be asking people when they're complaining about something that needs to be addressed. Well, I was going to try to squeeze in one more audience question, but looking at the clock, I know that you want to sign some books and meet some people. And so I'm going to ask this last question on behalf of everyone in the audience. Last line in the book, last paragraph of the book. I should book. have read the book recently. I'm trying to remember what my last line was. I did my homework, yeah. Governor. I did I not want to be so. in trouble. And, and your dad looms large in the book because your dad loomed large in your life. And it's on those grounds alone, you need to read the book. But you, you talk about something those of us who reach a certain age think about with, with loved ones who've moved on to the next life. So this is about your dad imagining for those of us who ride horses, you get another horse ride with him. I don't know for sure you write, but I can imagine him saying something like this. There's a lot that needs fixing still, and we're burning daylight, mm -hmm. but it will be a better day tomorrow. For America, in spite of all of the challenges, thinking about the themes and all of these questions, why? Is the future still bright? I think for the first time in a very long time, we've got proof that what we believe as conservatives works. Uh, the pandemic gave us a unique opportunity to really show that leadership had consequences and it made all the difference in the world. So we've talked about as Republicans or conservatives or however you affiliate about, well, we believe this. We believe in these economic principles. We believe in limited government. We actually, during the pandemic, had the chance to look from state to state and see where those types of decisions had a dramatic effect on people's lives. And we know now and have the proof that what we believe works. That's a great opportunity for us to bring hope to people and to, and to show them that America's brightest days, I believe, are still ahead, that, that people are happier um, when they're free, and that it's a great time for us to recenter on our foundational principles and the gift that that uh, those men and women who sacrificed such great things to give us this country did. Um, it really was 
a great experiment, but my goodness, it's still the most amazing country in the entire world. So it's worth getting up every single day and deciding to be happy. We've got a lot of people that have forgotten how blessed we are to live here. So let's wake up and be happy and make sure we're bringing that hope. Excellent response. Thank yeah. you so much. So the, the old Catholic school headmaster is going to come out here. A little bit of logistics, if you don't mind. We'll, of course, give the governor another warm round of applause here in a moment. But if you would, let her exit the stage so she can get in a position to sign books. She wants to do that. But most of all, I want to thank all of you in the audience here today. Let us maybe take a charge from Governor Nome that understanding campaigns and policy is very important. But what's really important is starting with relationships, building friendships, even amid political differences. And that's how we restore this country. But I will end on this note, Governor Nome. Thanks for your leadership. Thanks for being a friend of the Heritage Foundation. And thanks Thank for you. being here. Thank you. God bless you. Yeah. Bless you too. Thank you.